And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Hey everyone, it's Hiba here. While we're gearing up for our next season, which we'll be releasing soon, we wanted to share a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of our Kerning Cultures episodes. To be honest, there's no one way of doing it. Depending on the story, an episode can take months of production, hours of interviews, hours of editing, and the stories unfold to us in a different way each time. But we have figured out a few key ingredients to great radio storytelling over our coming on six years of doing this. And today we're going to talk about the journey our producers went on while making two stories from last season. The episodes we'll talk about are called Trancing with the Czars and Zao Bell. To jog your memory, I'll play a bit of tape from the first episode, Trancing with the Czars. Today on Kerning Cultures, we're going to get a little mystical. Okay, so tell me how this all started, Zena. I first heard about the Czar last summer. This is producer Zena Duidar. It was my first time ever hearing about it, and it was one of my friends. He told me there was something cool he wanted to show me, and he said it was in downtown Cairo. I asked what it was, he wouldn't tell me. He told me I would have no clue what we were doing before we got there. We get in the car, we're driving through downtown Cairo. I recognize nothing around me. I have no idea where we're going or where he's taking me. And we pull up to this theater and it was packed with people. There were so many people inside. And we sat down. It was kind of a theater space. So there was an empty space at the front and then towards the back it was kind of lined with rows of chairs and we sat somewhere towards the very back of the room <laughs> after a little bit of time from behind us these performers came out with instruments all of these different, really traditional Egyptian instruments, so like big tablas and tamburas and stringed instruments and percussions and all of these different instruments. And they came out to the front of the room and they started performing music I had never heard before and I had no clue what was happening. I didn't even have a frame of reference for what the music sounded like. There was absolutely nothing I knew that sounded like it. Here are producers Zena Duidar, Nadine Shaker, and Alex Atak to take it from here. Enjoy. Can I just like fire some questions at you and we'll just see where it goes? Go for Let's it. Do it. All right. Uh, I guess the first one I wanted to ask is like how you how you found the characters for the story because it's quite a it, it's a story that takes place behind like closed doors in a way like so I just wondered if you could talk to me about how you like found your characters and then also like how you got them to sort of trust you enough to like let you sit down and, and record an interview with them. Oh man, um, this is it was it was a bit ridiculous to be honest. I don't think I've ever 
worked so hard to find someone who'd agree to interview in my life. Um, oh, really? <laughs> basically, because I had first found out about the Zara at one of these performances and we were looking for like a uh, a real czar or like a more authentic czar to be going to, we, we, we needed like an in, we needed like uh, someone who can get us into one of these places. And that turned out to be much harder than we thought it would. Hiba, Afifi and I, the Arabic managing producer, we had gone to interview Zakaria, who is in the episode and he's the director of the Mustaba Center. It's a more healing music. They call it healing music abroad. This is Zakaria Ibrahim. He's a researcher of folkloric rituals in Egypt. It heals people through the music. And we asked him whether or not he can kind of uh, send us the contact of someone that we could sort of speak to um, to try and get into a, a real czar. And he was like, sure, but it's going to cost you. Uh-huh. And this was something that already was a bit tricky because he wanted money in the first place and it had been quite like a a lengthy discussion to have him agree that due to journalistic practices, we don't usually pay the people mm. we interview and it would be unethical for us to do so. So he had just about agreed to it, but now he was saying like, there's no way this lady will agree to let you attend the Zod without you paying for it. Like paying um, him or paying her? Both of them. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. We knew right off the bat that it's going to be a very transactional thing. I mean, I think we called like every Zara performance <laughs> performer across Egypt, and they would say the same thing: like, we want money. Obviously, they were they weren't just going to let us like sit in on this thing. It was turning into like the service that they were offering because yeah. like the nature of the Zara had changed. Mm. <laughs> Okay, so eventually Zakaria, the person Zena is talking about, uh, put us in touch with Umm Sayyid, who hosted the czar, who was basically hosting these weekly czars, or I don't know uh, how often they happened at her home. So I remember Hiba Fifi, the Arabic managing producer, had a series of uh, conversations or negotiations with her on the phone. I don't know, Zain, if you remember, but she, like Umm Sayyid was like, what, you know, what's your intent and what, what, what do you want to do? Because all of them have a problem with framing the story and we can talk about that later. But like eventually, eventually we basically befriended her. And when we went to her home, she was really, really friendly and kind of opened her door to us. But then when we got there, um, we it was as if like, you know, all the women there, they were paying to be part of the czar. So we just thought of it as like, OK, we're paying to attend, not participate, but we're also paying to be there. That's how we thought about it. Um, and so you... Like when you kind of were there recording and then you came back with like a bunch of tape, like hours and hours of tape from interviews to like recordings of the czar. And like, how did you sit down with all of that tape and plot a sort of clear narrative in this story, which was really a story that didn't like have a clear narrative going into it. There was no yeah. chronological or clear arc to it. So how did you kind of plot that? It was really tricky because, like you were saying, there's no clear story. Like, there wasn't a beginning and a middle and an end to the story. It was more, here's something that we found that's super interesting and we want to tell you about it. So, like, when do we tell you about its history? When do we tell you about what's going on today? When do we bring in the different, you know, 
gender aspects to it? When do we bring in the different mystical aspects to it? Because there are so many things that make up the Zor. And on the one hand, I really wanted to do it justice because it was something that was so rich in history and so um, complex in the way that it was built. And so I wanted to make sure that I was able to do that justice. But at the same time, it had to be like neatly packaged in like a 40-ish minute episode that someone who's never heard about the Zara would be able to listen to and, and understand. What, do you, what are those things that you look for in, in, uh, in, in, in forming a story, plotting an arc? What are the kind of main pieces of that puzzle that you, that you know you need for any story? I think one of the things we speak about a lot as a team is finding a conflict to the story. Like there has to be some sort of conflict or tension or turning point to sort of grab the listeners and, and some sort of hook that they can kind of hold on to throughout the episode. And so for me, for the Zor episode, that was there were two of them. There was us finding a Zor in the first place and the sort of search for the Zor that ended up being a, a big part of the episode. And then the other part being how it became really stigmatized and how it's dying out today. Yeah, I mean, you also did that kind of like sort of. We we don't do this that much, but you kind of put yourself into the story as producers. Uh, it like your kind of. It was kind of like some of the conflict was built up around you as producers being sort of like millennial Egyptians who don't really <laughs> like didn't really know that much about the Zara going into it, uh, and kind of like your learning curve of kind of like your your sort of like journey of discovery. Um, as producers, I don't know. Am I right in saying that that's kind of like a, a a narrative tool that you used? Yeah, a really big part of the story was just how completely new to me it was. You know, the the start of the story is me talking about how a friend took me to a mainstream zone in the first place, and how I had no idea what was happening and was just completely shook. Um, and then a lot of it is, you know, while I'm doing these interviews, trying to figure out what the zone is and it really was a learning process, both inside and outside of the script, like even up until maybe right before the episode was published. Like I was like the typical, you know, scared person. Like, I don't know what to expect from this. This is going to be so ominous. And I remember I would have these arguments, maybe, I don't know if this should be off the record, probably not. <laughs> but like I had major arguments with my husband because we, you know, as young Egyptians have this like awful image of Zars from movies. And, you know, we, we thought it was going to be this morbid thing, very underground, like the people who were performing it was scary, you know, like it's spirit possession, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so like there was this whole argument about whether uh, he should accompany us to the Zar, Hiba and I. And, he, oh, and wow. there was like a lot of like, no, you're not coming. We don't need a male companion. <laughs> but then he ended, he ended up, you know, coming and, and you know, Umma Said and everyone there kind of expected him to be there. Like there was no, there was no surprise. He was uninvited, but there, they were like kind of, okay, you're here too, no problem. <laughs> Did, did, how did how did everybody there react to like two people being there with a, a big microphone and recorder and headphones? Oh well, yeah. There, there. So in the beginning, there was a little bit of suspicion, uh, but that was normal. But I think once we got in and they offered us a cup of tea and we started talking, uh, people became more relaxed. But I think they were really. Um, 
really concerned about framing the not framing the story as um as you know a spirit possession thing or an exorcism or stuff like that because the media tended to do that uh but also because they had run-ins with the police because of that and i think that's why i think zena when you started doing the story people told you like oh you get arrested blah 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 because you know they had this reputation of being con men and con women you know the ignorant ignorant type or the people who are doing something wrong or illegal but at the end of the day desire is really about spirits and spirit possession and there was no denying like even like there were so many contradictions in the interview because like they would tell us uh, stuff like this has nothing to do with spirit possession but then one minute later he would tell us like a story about how he prepares a woman for a czar and that's basically identifying which spirit she's possessed with so, so it's like okay <laughs> how's that so yeah but i think from the general sort of audience or from our audience we we got quite positive responses i think for a lot of people like nadine was saying it's something that we only saw about in movies and it was always in a very sort of negative light and so for people to hear about it in a more i'm not saying positive way but definitely a much more neutral way in a way that sort of explains the history and context of it rather than just uh, stigmatizing it a lot of people were really excited to listen to it and and felt like they had learned something new about something they may have once heard about before So I think in general people seem to receive it quite well even my grandparents who at first weren't so happy about the story definitely really liked the episode Could one of you just Should sort of come at me? You with yeah, questions? yeah, come at me. <laughs> okay, I guess my first question is: you you had first heard about the story as a mini segment on another episode, is that correct? So, like, how did you decide to adapt it into something that was original and new, even though you had first heard it on on a podcast? So it wasn't even like an article. I think so I I heard I heard an like a long interview with Ian on another podcast called Ephemeral. Ian was the person that ended up becoming the main character or the, the sort of main storyteller in the story. Uh and he does like a lot of different stuff so he has probably like 50 projects going on at the same time. So Zarbel is like a very the story of Zarbel and like her records is like a very small part of his work and it was about like all of his other work and then at the end there was like a five minute segment where he talked about Zabel Panosian and he mentioned some of the like he, I think he just like mentioned like she's this Armenian singer I came across her record no one knew who she was and when I like spoke to Armenians about it it turned out that she was actually like this hugely influential singer in the 1910s 1920s but her legacy was almost completely forgotten and that that was kind of basically it and then i heard the record and probably in the same way as ian did i was like holy shit this is it's just like an amazing and like haunting and like really beautiful piece of music that i just it was just like the song that i was like i just i want to figure out a way of doing something about this song because it seems like it's important
before we interview people, we do pre-interviews, which is just the sort of process of like getting to know somebody and like just chatting with them about the story, you know, getting on the same page, making sure they know your intentions with the story. And usually these last like 10 to 15 minutes, they're just quick chats on the phone, getting to know each other and saying hi. With Ian, like I, I couldn't cap it at 50, like the, the pre-interview lasted about 45 minutes and he just, he was just telling stories. And like, I was like trying to be like, can we just like stop and like, we'll record all of this later. Um, and so I kind of knew like after, like while I was pre-interviewing, I was like, okay, Ian is a, an amazing storyteller and he's someone who can like speak with a lot of emotion and a lot of sort of depth and meaning. And he knows, like he, he, he knows the story inside out. And I, and I, so after that pre-interview, I was like, okay, Ian is like, Ian's the guy that I'm going to sort of hang a lot of the story off of. Um, and then the same happened with Harry Kazelian, to be honest, like I spoke to Harry for about an hour on a pre-interview and he was telling me all kinds of stuff about Armenian music, Armenian folklore history. Like it, it, he was just an amazing character to talk to as well. So I think after speaking to those two guys, I was like, okay, this is like, we have like a, we have like a full on story here. I don't know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but I'm assuming you didn't know a lot about the Armenian music history or musical history or their immigration into the States. No, and I knew so nothing. I guess I'm wondering, you know, when it's a story where you really don't have any context um, or don't have any familiarity with it, how do you do your research to make sure that you've covered all your bases when you're writing, when you're writing the script? So I think... I find that I, like for me, this is something I'm constantly thinking about because I'm not I'm not Armenian, I'm not even from the Middle East, you know, and and, and yet I work for a podcast that tells stories about the Middle East. So like I, I, it's something that I'm like constantly conscious of is just like checking myself, making sure that I've kind of covered as many like covered as much research as I possibly can, and that I know the story from kind of every perspective I can sort of research it from before I go into the interviews because I feel like for me there's that extra layer of like not wanting to look like an idiot right of like not wanting to misunderstand cultural nuances of like not wanting to get history wrong like I feel like I'm constantly trying to just make sure that I'm not like coming to this from a complete outsider's perspective right like I think it's like super important to always try and be coming at a story from like the way that the people involved in the story would want it to be told, especially with something like the Zabel story. I started by just doing as many like sort of pre-interviews with people as I possibly could. So I did like, I spoke to Ian, I spoke to Harry, um, I spoke to Varajan, who was Zabel's descendant. I spoke to another one of uh, Zabel's descendants. Uh, and then I spoke to Marion Mesorobian McCurdy, who like amazing sort of font of knowledge on Armenian music. Uh, and so I spoke to her on the phone for like three hours uh, in two sittings and she she was talking to me about Armenian music history. Um, she was playing tapes for me, like she had a CD player behind her and she was like playing songs for me over Zoom. Yeah, so you can hear... Um... And then she was like talking to me through the translations and she was saying like, you know, this, this particular note at this point in the song, this is unique to Armenian music. Part of the power of a song like that is simply that long legato line that doesn't move it just stays so she like that was amazing and like getting to sort of listen back to all of that uh and then like i was just listening to a lot of armenian music like i i i, I was just like listening to gomitas in my free time zarbel 
uh, Ian sent me like her whole back catalog. And so I would just have it when I wasn't working or whatever, when I was just doing something else, I would just like have it on in the background so that it would like kind of like seep into my brain a little bit more and that I would sort of get a better understanding of like how the music hits and, and the, the the sort of important moments in the song. Um, and then also just like reading like as many sort of articles, research papers, books about uh, about Armenian like history broadly as I could. Like the best one I read was uh, Marion's book, um, Sacred Justice was was the book that sort of really helped me understand a lot of a lot of the context that I was sort of needed to understand for the for the story and then the last thing I did was I had a I have a close friend uh who's a journalist Armenian journalist um and I was running everything by him like I ran the episode by him before it ran just to say like is there anything where I've worded something wrong where I've gotten a history thing wrong I mean we fact check everything but like you know, was there anything that was like culturally, uh, sort of any sort of cultural nuance that I've missed out on here? Um, just to sort of gut check with him. Um, Alex, uh, I wanted to ask you what I really loved about the story that it, it really felt like this intimate portrait of a, a singer that kind of is forgotten in history. And I really wanted to ask, like, how did you know what aspects of her to reveal in the story about her? I think it was like um it's like very small things like like the intro scene uh I know that I wanted the intro scene to be like to kind of get a sense of what it might have felt like to be in a room with Zabel like as she was performing If the room had rafters you'd say it was packed to the rafters but it didn't because rooms as fancy as this generally don't Instead it had chandeliers probably at least 8 of them the edges were lined with wide doorways and heavy curtains were pulled shut over those to keep the sound in. The room was so full that in a photograph taken from the stage that evening, the date was October 9th, 1919, the entire bottom half of the photograph is just faces crowded around tables in rows that go all the way to the back of the room. And so Marion had this amazing segment in her book, which was pure luck that we came across this, was that, you know, her grandmother had been to see Zabel live back in... Uh, 1919 and so she had this account of her and you know there were just small details in there like what the room looked like how many people were in the room like the fact that Zabel sung draped in like an Armenian flag um just just through small details that I'd learned in interviews that we didn't use the tape from you know I was able to sort of like paint a paint a picture of her and then also talking to her relatives like Varujan was uh, amazing to talk to because he grew up with her like he he was a kid and she was his aunt and so like i had i had loads from him that i could draw on like he used to take her out for uh, she used to take him and his brother out for ice cream and like he would get the train down from like i think it was long island that he lived in to manhattan to visit her apartment and i had the the uh, like i had the name of her apartment like the and he was like 87 something street and i included that in the story and it got cut but it was like had all these details about stuff that is it feels it feels in a way like irrelevant like what apartment number she lived in but i think including all of those details like it can it helps like build some sort of like subconscious picture of what somebody might have been like um but then it was also like i didn't want to you know i'm i'm coming to this nearly 100 years after the story happened like 
I don't want to speculate about what she would actually would have been like as a person. So I think there's a line of, okay, is this, is this a documented fact that somebody has good sort of like verifiable evidence for when we're going through a final draft of a script, we'll go line by line and just make sure that every single thing in there is like verifiable, even down to like, you know, the chandeliers in the room, like were there chandeliers in that room? Do we have a picture of it? Okay. If not, we have to cut that line. Um, so I think, I think that's pr kind of important when you're doing history stories. It's like you can't, you can't sort of push your own ideas of what somebody might've been like or what an event might've been like. Can you talk a little bit about how you did the sound design for the episode? Cause I think it's probably in my opinion, one of the most like beautifully sound designed episodes we did in the season. Oh, thanks. Um, so can you talk a little bit how you about how you wrote the script with sort of the music in mind? Yeah. If, if that was how you did it? I, Me and Mohammed, like the sound designer, so we worked on it together. Um, and we had like, we wanted it to feel very, uh, we wanted it to feel almost like you were listening to the episode on a record which was, I think, like, maybe an ambitious idea. But, like, that was, the, that was the idea we had going in. Like, we wanted to, the episode to, like, sound very tactile and, like, like, you could feel the records. And so there are two bits in the episode. There's one which I, I spent, I think I spent, like, a day sound designing this, like, one 10-second segment of the episode, which was, like, the bit where she's recording Gurung. And the recording engineers show the performers a green card to tell them when the machine is running and they should start. And then... They sing into the horn. The vibrations of their music making, of singing or whatever, flow down through the horn and vibrate a little diaphragm. And that vibrates and that vibrates the needle, which cuts into a thick wax disc. And then... When the needle is getting to the end of the disc, they're shown a yellow card, which means you got 10 seconds. Wrap it up. And so a person who buys that record puts a, a steel needle with pounds of pressure per square inch into the groove. That needle vibrates a diaphragm. The vibrations of that diaphragm flow out of a tube, out of a horn, and into the room and recreate the same vibrations that were captured in the room on the day of the performance. It's a direct recreation of the memory of that person during that three minutes of their life. I, I, yeah we wanted it to feel very tactile we wanted it to feel very much like you were listening to the episode like on almost as if you're listening to the episode on a on a record and mo even in the final mix we used like um we used a kind of tape delay overlay on the entire rec on the entire episode which sort of mixed it in a way that sounds more i mean these are things you would never notice if you're listening to it in your car or like on ipod headphones or like <laughs> But it's just nice to have these like Easter eggs in there for you, you know, so when you listen back on it, you know that like how much kind of effort and thought went into 
the piece. And I think even if people don't notice it, no one's listening to it going, wow, I really like how they made it sound like a tape delay on this, but like it adds some, some special detail to, to the, um, to the whole thing in a way that I, I think kind of elevates it, even if it's just subconsciously. This behind-the-scenes episode was put together by Alex Atak with Zena Duidar and Nadine Shekir, and editing by Dana Balut, mixing by Mohamed Khezat. We have some great content coming up soon in the lead-up to our next full season, so stay tuned on this feed, keep subscribed, so you'll never miss an episode. As always, if you're liking Kerning Cultures, please do take a quick second to rate us on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. It really helps boost our ranking so that other listeners can find out about these wonderful stories. If you've already left a review, then I would like to ask you to please tell your friends about Kerning Cultures and encourage them to become listeners too. Lastly, Kerning Cultures is a bigger network than just this podcast. We have seven shows in Arabic and in English under our network, actually, so I encourage you to check out our other shows if you haven't heard them yet. You can find the list wherever you get your podcasts by searching Kerning Cultures Network or going to our websites at kerningcultures.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>